Garbage Village, Museum Gift Shop, Cambodian Daughter. Today on The Pursuit, Diana Mao. Welcome to The Pursuit, unfiltered conversations with faith leaders about their journey to pursue God. I'm your host, Richard Lee, and today my guest is Diana Mao. Diana is the president and co-founder of Nomi Network, creating pathways to safe employment and economic stability for communities of women to prevent trafficking and empower future generations. In 2015, the Presidential Leadership Scholars Program selected her for its inaugural class, and she currently serves on the White House Public-Private Partnership Advisory Council to End Human Trafficking. You may have read her writings on these issues for the Huffington Post or Reuters. Diana's journey of starting Nomi Network began in her home and took her all the way to a hut in Cambodia. This episode contains brief mentions of violence that some people may find disturbing. So Diana, you have spent time on the West Coast and on the East Coast, and now you're in Dallas. So pick a coast or, you know, the South. What's your preference? Um, Well, I would say New York will always be home. I appreciate just the diversity there and the fact that I could be sitting on a subway with, you know, the wealthiest person in New York and a homeless person. And that's what I've always appreciated about New York. And that's what drew me to the city in the first place. And so there's no other city like it. I've traveled all over the world, lived in many countries for work and also personally. And every time I come back to New York, I almost want to just kiss the floor and thank God for bringing me back to the city. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Southern California, was born and raised there and really love California for nature, for the beach, the mountain. Really every landscape is available within a 40 minute radius. So my father was born in China and my mother in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. So they actually met in California through my grandparents who, I wouldn't call it an arranged marriage, but they definitely, you know, my grandparents met in church and just thought that my parents should connect. Uh And so eventually they got married and um, yeah, I was born in California. Growing up was interesting. (laughs) Why do you say that? Uh, English was not my first language. Chinese was my first language. So I think, you know, coming into a household where both of my parents had, you know, just really strong family of origin beliefs and culture. And then also uh, going to elementary school and just being faced with sort of um, almost embarrassed in my heritage in many ways because my elementary school wasn't as diverse. And so being Asian American, definitely I got a lot of weird looks during lunch when I would open up my uh, lunchbox and have something foreign instead of the traditional sandwich. So how did you process that? How did you navigate through all of that growing up, needing to sort of bridge the gap between the culture you were seeing at school, but then the culture that you were living with at home? Yeah, I would say um, I was just very, I was kind of like, in many ways, adaptable. (laughs) I mean, growing up at home, you know, there was just a lot of, I would say abnormalities in many ways in my family. Um, You know, my Dad um, grew up in communist China, and his parents are strong Christians, but sadly, they um, had to flee the country when he was very young because of their faith and family had a lot of wealth as well. And so he grew up, sadly, not you know stuck in China with his siblings. And so with that 
came eventually his internment in labor camp. He, it was discovered that his parents had Western ties and were living in Hong Kong and, you know, who he really was, his identity. And so he ended up in labor camp and I think immigrating to the United States eventually in the late 70s was difficult for him, having major PTSD on top of the cultural barriers and, you know, not speaking English. Mm-hmm. Um and so that, you know, in itself really manifested in my household at a young age. Um, and then, of course, my mom's side also, you know, very different and a lot of family of origin challenges as well. And so I was always uh, by nature a peacemaker and okay. very adaptable in the sense, you know, co- trying to accommodate my family and just my dad, his expectations, as well as at school, um, managing expectations as well of my teachers and, you know, being an achiever, I always wanted to excel, I would say yeah. in many ways. Can you think of an example of how your peacemaking qualities were on display as a child? I mean, I mean, in a family context, I would say my parents, you know, argued a lot and fought a lot. Mm. Mainly my dad had PTSD. My mom also had some bipolar issues. And I would say that manifested in a very difficult way. And so oftentimes I was caught in the middle and I would at a very young age really try to help them (laughs) make peace or I had a faith at a young age and I would pray a lot. So thankfully uh, faith was brought into my life through not my parents, but through my grandma who lived with us. I see. Um, She's now 106 years old and she has a very strong faith in God. So you had talked about this identity, finding your identity in college. Um, where was your faith identity sort of being developed? Yeah, I would say my faith identity began also in college. Um, I grew up going to church, uh, mm-hmm. reading. My grandma would read Bible stories to me. So I knew the Bible, but and I even accepted Christ at the age of 15. But I really wasn't living it or walking in faith Um and a lot of it, you know, had to do with my own childhood, family of origin issues. And in some ways, I don't want to say blame God, but kind of wishing that I was born into a different family. Mm. I was more supportive in many ways. And so it wasn't until college, actually, when I started really just even reading the Bible for myself. Yeah. Sophomore year, I was part of Asian American Christian Fellowship, and one of the leaders saw potential in me. and asked me if I would lead a Bible study, a women's Bible study. And I was like, sure. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I was in college involved with a lot of, you know, I was in a sorority and then also involved um, just with different, anything that (laughs) leadership oriented, I was drawn to, to some degree. Mm -hmm. And so I just said, yes. And really that forced me to actually study the Bible. We were going through the book of Hebrews and I thought to myself, well, if I'm going to lead women's Bible study, I should probably read the Bible. (laughs) So, you know, I applied a lot of rigor to studying the book of Hebrews. And I would say that really started to transform my heart and my faith. And so I started to really press into the things of God. And that's what led me to commit two years to living in a ministry house um, following my senior year. When you were in college, what was your plan for employment? So growing up, I was a bit rebellious in many ways. And my grandmother was a board member at her church, very involved. Okay. I really lived by her faith. I mean, she would invite 
homeless individuals to our home for Thanksgiving. Wow. And really just had a heart to for missions and to pour out. So starting at the age of 15, she would send me on mission trips um, to the slums of like Mexico, Brazil, Egypt. And so she would personally pay for me to go to these places and serve. With the church? Um, with the church, yes. Okay. And then in a varsity Christian fellowship and, and other ministries as well, um, following that. But every year I just had such exposure to, I would say, global poverty and also um, being selfless, although I wasn't, it was more like action, but I would say there was no heart transformation in that active service. As you're developing this heart for the poor and for people that are less fortunate, and at the same time you're graduating college, what are sort of your thoughts about uh, employment, your job, your career? I really didn't know. I knew I wanted to serve in missions, but I also knew I didn't want the traditional missionary path of raising support. Um, ironically, much of my role now with Nomi Network is raising funds. <laughs> so uh, back then I just wasn't you know, quite comfortable raising funds for my own um, you know, basic needs, yeah. uh, so to speak. And so that, um, I knew I wanted to serve in missions and I knew I wanted to actually, I committed, um, to serving the poor that year when I was in Egypt, but I didn't know what that would look like. And so living at the ministry house for two years following my graduation was a really good, I would say, I don't want to call it a sabbatical because by no means was it a sabbatical, but it was the time for me to recalibrate and only search God and, and, you know, for the next steps. So. I ended up applying to obtain my master's at NYU in international management with a focus on um, management of public and nonprofit entities. And so that was my way of being exposing myself to more international work because what I did see was the disconnect between serving the poorest of the poor through missions and not seeing their physical needs met. And so that was something that I felt was a disconnect because I really had the desire, you know, to see a child not have to like borrow through trash and dig through trash with her bare hands full of syringes, human feces. And that's what I saw in Egypt in the garbage village called Mokatim. I saw infants, children playing in trash. Wow. And so we were sharing the gospel and we were serving in orphanages, caretaking for orphans and um, elderly widows there. But oh, and by the end of the day, I always left the orphanage um, dissatisfied because I really wanted to see more um, substance in the change of the environment in which they were in, which is bare trash. And so that's when um, I really, I would say, started to ask questions and I didn't have answers. So graduate yeah. school was the this intuitive next step for me. And so I applied to a handful of universities in California and then also NYU. And I got into all of the schools by the grace of God because my you know undergrad GPA was not very high. <laughs> <laughs> so miraculously I did uh, you know end up going to NYU. You had mentioned that you started asking questions in Egypt that you didn't have answers to. What were some of those questions? Well, I mean, the real raw question was, 
really to God, like, God, why, you know, why did I grow up in sunny California? And why are these children in abject poverty, like digging through trash and living in trash? I mean, there was a question to God, there was a question to um, the missions director, what else can we do to help besides what we've done in the summer, which is volunteer in the orphanage and um, visit homes of the garbage city dwellers and share the gospel with them in their homes. What else could be done? So that's my question, you know, overall to my missions team. And then I would say when we had our debrief session in Washington, DC, I had an eye-opening moment. Um, one of our one of my peers during that year of the mission trip was placed at a environmental agency in uh, the garbage village. And so this nonprofit organization actually purchased the trash from purchased the sorted trash because the garbage village uh, dwellers, they sort through the trash. And okay. so they helped the dwellers process it in a more clean way. Instead of using their bare hands, they had a whole process. And when I was in Egypt, I saw these beautiful rugs that were made of trash and coasters and chairs. As This is really neat. Like, wow, these are you know items from trash, beauty for ashes. Like I really yeah. see it actually happening. And then during the break, when we were at the debrief session in DC, this is after the trip, we were all brought together from different countries to debrief. I had, uh, we had some downtime. So a few friends and I, we went to the, a museum and DC is full of museums. I can't remember which one, but I actually saw in their gift shop, the rug and it even had their logo on it, APE. Wow. And I was just blown away. I first, I think it's divine that I actually even saw this rug and we happened to step foot into that museum. Right. <laughs> and it happens to be that APE, the organization that my peer had been placed in, in Egypt. Wow. So that then I just started to think of ideas and I was like, wow, it ended up here and hopefully they're getting a benefit there in that garbage village. I'm sure they are. You know, so so that was when the ideas just started like percolating in my mind, and I didn't know what to do with it. I mean, that was, you know, I was still an undergrad, and I just had just ideas and questions of the how tos, yeah, but um, nothing really substantial, I would say, in terms of answers at that moment. So by the time you get to graduate school, you're already thinking of nonprofit leadership. What did you have in mind for what your future would look like? I think. I constantly faced really the struggle of, um, at least in my family among, I can't speak for all Asians, but there's just this expectation to make a lot of money, Um, you know, to have multiple homes, multiple cars. And many of my cousins and family members have achieved that. Um, So for me, it was really, I didn't have any plans to start a nonprofit what I really wanted to do was to learn the purpose of going to NYU is to learn about international development and learn about what the issues were in the world. So I learned more about the issues. I learned yeah. about what I was doing to address it. And then getting you know a management degree background, I felt like couldn't hurt, but it wasn't my intention to start a nonprofit. So at, in grad school, I exposed myself to the nonprofit world. I exposed myself to um, government. I Mm -hmm. was the fellow for the United States Small Business Administration. I worked for a nonprofit, Asian Americans for Equality, 
And I felt lured into the private sector still. So I ended up Uh taking a position as a senior consultant for a firm based in DC upon graduating NYU. But I think God still had really um, (laughs) captured my heart in many ways. While I was in graduate school, I had taken a fellowship opportunity for working at a microfinance bank um, through Finca, Finca International. And so that brought me to Cambodia my second year of graduate school, um, where I surveyed microfinance clients, um, most of whom made less than a dollar a day. Mm. And in Cambodia back in 2007, you could actually see human trafficking live um, in the sense that, you know, you can be walking in a bar area and see girls, very young girls, clear clearly very young, being prostituted. Yeah, And I would say the tip of the iceberg was when um, we were serving a pool of clients near the Thai border. And so we had to take a SUV, a moped, and walk through leech-infested mud to get to this community of microfinance recipients. And so it was there that I met a single father. He had seven children. They were all living in a hut, sleeping on the floor. There was no bed. And I learned about tragic story of his wife dying. And after we had surveyed him, um, because we were charged with assessing the impact microfinance had on these clients, we had about 150 questions to ask him. Wow. He proceeded to offer my male colleague, his youngest daughter in broken English. Oh my goodness. And so that was the moment we looked at each other in horror, disbelief what was happening, awkwardly left his hut. And I, at that moment, committed myself to learning about the issue of human trafficking and seeing what I could do to help. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. When you saw that, you're there as to talk about microfinance, but you know your coworker is being offered to buy a girl. What sort of questions were going through your mind? Because you're sitting there trying to help this person on one side, right? Like on one hand, like you're trying to help this person run their business. But then on the other hand, there's this other issue that's clear it, like it's not connecting like that idea of justice or that idea of mercy is not connecting and extending even to the life of of his daughter what sort of questions were you thinking about the work you were doing and then the work that you wanted to do after this yeah i um i mean the main question is why would he do this but i answered the question myself by simply looking at their living quarters. Mm. And I had already taken 150 questions from him. I knew he had no assets. I knew that he was a farmer and he was not earning income during that year. Um, And I knew, calculated his daily per capita income, which is a proxy for income, um, I mean, expenditure. And it was less than a dollar. I mean, Mm. barely, I think it was like 50 cents per day. And so... I asked the question really this fall. I mean, first of all, are there more people like him in this village? Because everyone is at that similar less than a dollar a day. Yeah. And is this why, like, I'm seeing like so many girls in Phnom Penh, which is the capital of Cambodia? We were in a rural village at that time and we were sent all over Cambodia, but our base was Phnom Penh. So we would go there and stay, you know, in, a, in an area where there's a lot of expats. When we were back, and is this one of the drivers of human trafficking? Because mm-hmm. I would see girls, you know, really young looking, being prostituted, or with 
older men with that were clearly like their father or even grandfather's age. And so I just really began to ask the question of, you know, do, do these families have agency and what is driving their decision-making process? And do they know where their daughters will end up or sons even? Yeah. Do they know? And so these were all the questions that I asked and, you know, the question even of willing, unwilling crossed my mind as well because we couldn't communicate with them. And all I heard was you like her, you take her, um, in his broken English. Wow. We didn't engage in any conversation with him beyond that. So all of these questions that I, I just, you know, started to really, really, um, percolate in my mind. And so following year, I asked more questions. I went the following year to Cambodia, surveyed 12 anti-trafficking organizations, including IJM, Hagar, Rafa House. Um, And the goal was really, what can I do to help? Mm -hmm. I had these, you know, key ideas. I mean, stemming from my experiences in Egypt, seeing the trash turned into rugs. Yeah. I also met this single father who lived in the village. Actually, in the village, even on the street, I would see these beautiful wood carvings. Like they looked, it looked like cherry wood and it was like fixtures. It looked like wall fixtures. And I think they were selling it for like $2. So in my mind, as I was in these communities, I still saw potential. Like even though they were not clearly making income, I saw yeah. a lot of artisan work and craftsmanship and also assets like the wood, the beautiful wood. And so really asking the nonprofits, I had an assumption, like what if we created economic opportunity in these communities? Would that prevent parents from having to make really bad choices or decisions about their children or Mm -hmm. about their own income security, um, sending their kids off to work or sadly prostituting their children as well. So these were the questions I asked the nonprofits and I had an idea of what if we can turn this cherry wood into a product and sell it and benefit, you know, it was a very, very basic idea of selling a product made in this community to then benefit the community um, and help create work. I love the fact that so much of your story is about asking these questions. You're asking questions in Egypt, you're asking questions in this, you know, hut in Cambodia, and now you're asking questions you know, of these organizations and saying like, how do we empower these people through economics? And I feel like the process of asking these questions has gotten you closer and closer to quote unquote, the answer of where we get to Nomi Network. What was it like for you starting it, like making the decision to start it? I, I, I bet there are so many people that have thoughts about starting things like, you know, I see this need, I would love to start something, but there's the lack of inertia to sort of like get that ball rolling. What was it like for you to just actually make that decision to go for it? It was a process, I would say. I mean, I mentioned earlier, I ended up taking a job uh, for a consulting firm based in DC. And so the financial security and financial income growth was something that I, at the time, saw as important. And so I sort of had my dipped in the water. I was like, okay, well, summers, nights and weekends, I can invest in, it wasn't even called Nomi Network at that point. It was like, let's help Hagar, you know, Hagar on time. They had a social enterprise. Let's help them just enhance their products and get it to the global marketplace. 
that's it. So it was really out of that heart of service Mm -hmm. and just helping that we started doing it. And so we were really a volunteer network from 2009 till 2012. And so it was me and my two other co-founders investing our weekends, our nights into this endeavor, which at the time it was basically coming alongside shelters and survivor-based organizations and strengthening their livelihood component. And so we won a grant, which at the time we were working from my Wall Street apartment nights and weekends while I was working for the consulting firm. And we applied for, I wrote a grant leveraging my NYU no grant writing experience, but just <laughs> understanding, you know, nonprofits. So submitting this grant to the Department of State, and we found out we were awarded in the fall of 2011, which allowed us to start our India program in 2012. So by that time, we were awarded this modest grant, and we had no staff. We had a part time one of my co-founders, my third co-founder, who has a background in fashion and design. She was our first employee um, in 2011, and so part time. And now we, I was at this point in my mind where I was still not fully like wanting to give up my position in corporate because I was advancing pretty quickly. Okay, <laughs> and it was the pay was really really great, so and lots of benefits. And so I was still at this moment where like like I could still volunteer. I'm like, no, (laughs) there is no balance. I was in my early twenties and I was like, well, I have no life. Me and my co-founders are my friends too. So it's like, we're socializing or working and this is not really sustainable. So I um, thought to myself, I brought myself or God brought me back to the place of the first year in Cambodia, meeting that girl who I don't even know her name. Her father offered her to my male colleague, but I just, I know exactly what she looks like and her face will forever live in my memory. And then the following year meeting Nomi when we were serving the anti-trafficking organizations who's eight-year-old survivor of human trafficking and our namesake. And then realizing what do I have to lose? Like if I quit my job, actually my, the partner of the firm said, oh, if Nomi doesn't work out, you can always, or not Nomi, if your endeavor does not work, yeah. you can always just come back, you know, to the firm. And then I would never be desolate in the sense that I could always go back to my family or anyone in my family and live with them. So yeah. I think I was just calculating in my head and I decided just to quit my job and take the leap of faith. And the worst that can happen is don't have a job and, you know, back at my parents' house. Yeah. Whereas for the girls that I'd met, like if I don't do this, the worst for them is a lifetime of oppression and slavery. Yeah. So that was a calculation and that's what led me to take that step and start the organization officially. So the decision for you to quit your job and start this organization was really a decision of like weighing what it's costing you versus what it would cost people like Nomi if you didn't start it. So I realized at that moment that I had to take a chance and I really believed in what we were doing. And I, in my deep down in my heart, I believe that if that father and if mothers and parents had alternatives and had income, they would not be selling their children. Their families would be together. And that is what I held on to. And that was the moment when I was ready to take that next step and quit my job. I imagine that there's a lot of 
activating passion in the beginning of starting something that keeps you motivated, keeps you going day to day. During the times over the last you know decade as you've run Nomi Network, during the times where maybe you've hit a valley of passion or a valley of, of motivation, do you go back to thinking about people like Nomi and the girl in that village to keep you moving forward and to keep you motivated to, to see this through to success? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think about Nomi, who every year up until last year, um, I would visit her. Someone from the team would visit her. She's at an underage shelter and Nomi, we don't work with underage girls because our model is job placement, internship placement. But seeing her healthy, vibrant, full of faith and seeing her in the early years have such a propensity to care for others. I mean, one incident, my co-founder came in, she had fell off her moped and she had some scrapes on her arm and Nomi, I don't know, at the age, she was probably 10. She was like, Mm. oh, sister, let me help you get a Band-Aid. And super, she was super helpful and loving. And just seeing that really beauty of a child and her childlike faith, um, I would say from meeting her, you can't help but to just want to see all girls be cared for and restored, those that have experienced such trauma. And so that's really helped me to continue to keep the commitment my personal commitment to anti-human trafficking. And then another woman I met in the early years, and I actually don't remember her name, but I have her face <laughs> forever imprinted. Yeah. We were at a workshop in that Nomi was facilitating in 2012. And she came in, she's from a Muslim community. And the activity was for we were in the process of recruiting the first cohort of women into the program, the workforce development program. And she had the activity was that, you know, draw, here's a bunch of art supplies, um, draw a picture of something that represents you, who you are. And so, you know, some of the women drew their huts, others drew like, they're sorry, you know, very, I would say very uh, basic things that, you know, drew a picture of, their children, things that you would expect. And this woman, she drew a picture, a beautiful picture of a lotus flower. And, you know, I knew she was in a community that practices intergenerational prostitution. Mm. So she was prostituted by her, by her um, mother-in-law. And, and so I knew a little bit about her background. And she drew a picture of the lotus flower and proceeded to explain because we had group sharing time where she said, a lotus flower, you know, even out of dirt, something beautiful can come from it. And when she said that, it really touched me because, you know, for me, my paradigm is image of Christ. Uh-huh. I am made in the image of Christ. And her paradigm is that she is dirt, mm. you know, because in the context of her culture, women are seen no better than an animal. And I don't believe that. I, I, I personally want to see every person know that they are created in the image of Christ. Man, woman, um, you know, in the context of India, low caste, high caste, right. you know, because that is really what's going to unlock their potential is the belief that they have, that they are made in the image and they are worthy. And that's where their confidence comes from. So, so I, that moment just really shifted my paradigm and, that she thought that of herself, mm. kind of having a sneak peek into her mind. 
Um, and that was my first exposure. I mean, now, you know, we've worked with thousands of women and I have thousands of testimonies of women, you know, building that self-confidence over time and really being able to break free from the thought patterns, the heart patterns, as well as the intergenerational oppression that I see carried forth through human trafficking in their lives. What has been your experience as a CEO and specifically as a female CEO, a Asian American female CEO, what has been your experience with that? I would say it's been challenging <laughs> because I'll add another layer to that. Um, I appear young. And so there's been many cases where I've been discredited for age mm. or kind of overlooked. And I see it as opportunity for personal growth. And For you or for the other person? <laughs> for, for me, for me. Yeah. I think in my college years, I would want to like everything to do to prove myself, you know, and like, just like make it happen. (laughs) But now, you know, I, I pray for every, I pray before every meeting. I pray for our supporters. I pray when I'm about to go into a speaking engagement and I just, you know, all I can do is just be faithful. And it's got that changes hearts that unleashes generosity that opens up doors. And so I would say that um, element. And then also, you know, the NGO old world, I would say most of the leaders data shows are men. And Mm -hmm. um, for me, particularly being a young Asian woman at the time going into India, I was, I was in my mid twenties. And I recall getting thousands of applicants when we had 2012, we had to hire a program manager for Bihar, India. And every cover letter said, dear sir, dear sir, sir, dear respected sir, <sighs> respectable sir, dear sir. Wow. You know, sincere sir. Every CV was, they made the assumption that me and my co-founders were men. Oh my God. <laughs> so <laughs> I... You know, needless to say, faced a lot of challenges in India um, as a female, Asian American female operating in that paradigm. And through it all, I would say I have to look at myself the way God sees me and, you know, the way that Jesus lifted up women. And so I may not be lifted up in certain circumstances, and I probably continue that will happen, but my confidence is in God and you know, I would say in the world of anti-trafficking, there's just no room for egos. <laughs> so there's too much work to be done. And yeah. so I just smile, you know, and, you know, of course this happens also, you know, sometimes I would say with donors, particularly um, some new meetings were not taken particularly seriously until they do more research about the organization and our work. Huh. Um, and so, yeah, it is a challenge, I would say, you know, being the face of Know Me Network. Um, but I, I see it also as an opportunity. At an early age, you were identified as a leader. And, you know, here you are leading an organization that for a decade has been, you know, going out and changing lives of the people that you serve. And you're constantly stepping into situations where you may feel like your place as an Asian American woman CEO 
you're being underestimated, you're being overlooked, and yet your leadership persists. I mean, you're being identified as a uh, presidential leadership scholar, all of the accolades that are coming to you. Um, as you've thought through your life in this sort of thread of leadership, um, what are some of the lessons that you've learned all throughout your life that has made you the leader that you are today? That's a really great question. For me, um, I would say I'm learning to be a better listener. And it started with listening to God and Christ, you know, in college. And I would say now it's really listening to my colleagues, listening to our clients and not really dictating. And, and as a leader, I think there are leaders sometimes perceived as bossy. There are leaders, you know, there's a perception. I think when you're given um, the ability, you know, to drive something, you know, naturally you're an initiator. You initiate things. And I think for me, um, you know, naturally, I, I have the strength of being a command trait, which is very rare in actually women and also mm -hmm. very rare as a whole. I had to think back uh, most recently. And I would say in childhood, I really had to voice, be a voice, um, you know, growing up with both parents having struggling with mental illness. Yeah. Um, I had to tell them what I needed because if I didn't, you know, extreme case of starving or like not having my basic needs met as a very young child. Yeah. And so I would say that, you know, one counselor said recently that out of your greatest pain is where you'll find your strength. And I've been really meditating on that because, you know, my strength of having that command trait and being initiator and activator also stems from a place if I had to search my heart of some levels of brokenness from my family of origin. And so for me as a leader, it's important to find healing through that in Christ and surround myself also with people that are um, not just empathetic, but understand what it means to be a leader and to really also um, experience deeper levels of healing and not just be action oriented and lead, but also I would say not so much self care, but really personal transformation because it's a process and it's a journey. Do you think about yourself as a young child growing up in this home filled with, you said, conflict and mental illness? Do you think about yourself as a child as you also do the work that you do, thinking about the homes that you are restoring in the communities that you serve? That's a really great question. Yeah. I would say the thought has crossed my mind. I mean, my exchange with the single father. Mm. Um, thankfully, my parents, you know, are <laughs> financially stable. But you know, because of the the mental illness, yeah, I do wonder. I was like, wow, if I grew up in Cambodia with my parents and let's say no social framework in terms of protecting children, then could that girl be me? Yes, that question did cross my mind, and I do believe in the power of restoring families, and I've seen just generational slavery and trauma being generational slavery being cut and generational trauma being healed i would say slowly in my own family but also i would say through the lives of the women that we serve you know women that are survivors are adopting other survivor teenage survivors daughters they're serving going above and beyond when their lives are invested in. And I believe in just investing in lives and investing in families, investing in, in um, human potential. And so I've seen that in my own family and I've seen the impact of that in the lives that we serve. 
and also, you know, slowly, sometimes it's more difficult to see that in your own family than, you know, it is to see across the world. But I also see that happening in many ways. And so I do draw some parallel, but I would say being born in a zip code that is favorable, you know, has lended myself with privilege that I just would not know if I was born in a different zip code, if my life would end up the way it is now. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned, like, you know, I've, I have know me and myself have received many awards for our work. And I feel that, you know, any one of the women that I've seen in India that rose and have taken sacrificial steps and become leaders in the communities could actually be in my shoes. So I take this role very seriously. Yeah. And um, I am thankful that, you know, God has put me in the family that I'm in actually, so that I can really be able to relate and have deeper levels of compassion for those that we serve. Diana's life and journey has been marked by her listening to and believing in those less fortunate around her. And when she sat in a Cambodian hut many years ago, she didn't just see a broken father, she saw a broken system. And she's committed her life to helping those within that system by creating a path for them to be empowered. You can follow the work of Nomi Network at nominetwork.com and find them on social at Nomi Network. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Pursuit. I love that we get to feature yet another female Asian CEO or president. Sisters, we need more of you. If you've been enjoying The Pursuit, would you take a moment, click over to the Apple Podcast app and leave a five-star rating and then call your mom and ask her to do the same. Great, thank you. Thank you to the Missio Alliance and to the Sola Network for their partnership with The Pursuit with Richard Lee. Now, as we go, remember, you may not know where your journey ends, but you can find God all along the path. And I was just like, where am I? Oh my gosh. That's your welcome to Dallas. I'm sorry.